Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're uh, now about to start the session on foreign policy and defence implications of uh, today's elections. So, uh, if we could have your uh, attention, please. Okay, <coughs> we're now starting the final session, and thank you for uh, keeping with us until the uh, late uh, hour, as it were. I'm delighted to introduce our panellists, uh, my colleague from uh, Ideas, LSE Ideas, Mick Cox, who will be speaking first, Yu Che, the head of the China Foresight Project and the Darendorf Senior Research Associate of LSE Ideas, and uh, Brian Klass, uh, LSE Fellow in Comparative Politics. So it's a session where we hope to look at the implications of today's uh, election for Britain's position in the world, Britain's foreign policy, and perhaps uh, changing external uh, relations. My colleagues have agreed to speak for no more than five minutes to set the scene, and then we'll have questions and open up for uh, discussion. And I volunteered Mick, Fo Mick Cox you. on your behalf to go first. Okay, thanks, sir. Thanks, Kevin. Hi, everybody, and, and well done for staying on. Uh, well, uh, Britain's position in the world, I'll, I'll start with that very briefly, which is, I think, has been severely damaged by the Brexit vote. I, I mean, whichever way we cut it, however we want to sell it, around the world, wherever I travel, you get the same rea reaction, unless you're talking to Donald Trump. <laughs> and I haven't spoken to the Donald recently, but the, the reaction you get wherever you travel to Europe or you travel and talk to what I call normal Americans is what the hell do you think you're doing? Why did you do it and are you mad? Um, and I think there's no doubt that uh, with, with the very few exceptions in the world, the response overall to what, what happened last June has been, uh, been one of confusion amongst our friends. I was recently in Dublin last week, a deep worry about the consequences of following through for Ireland who is a very close and good friend of ours, of course. So I think we start with a general point that Britain's position in the world, I think, in terms of soft power, in terms of our image, has been severely damaged. By the way, I think it was equally damaged by association with Donald Trump because it followed so quickly after the, the Brexit vote. The two things in people's minds became one and the same thing. And so we became associated with probably not only the least popular American president since time began, um, and he may not be around for very much longer, but somebody whose who's policies around the world, except in relationship to Saudi Arabia and Israel, um, seem to be creating a, a large degree of negative flack, to say the least. I also noticed, by the way, just talking of the Donald just for a second, I have to mention it, of course, you know, his one intervention into our particular troubles after the London Bridge uh, atrocities, I mean, just revealed the, the, what I would call the cut of the jib of the man, I mean, you know, to exploit that at that time. And I think this is quite important because the Conservatives in general terms have played the Anglo-American relationship to the hilt. You know, the special relationship with America has always been the kind of flagship. It after all began with Winston Churchill, a, mu a much greater man than any we've had in the Conservative Party for, <laughs> for the last 50 or 60 years. But nonetheless, the very fact you can't even take the, the, that relationship with the United States any longer as an asset seems to me, again, something which you know, is a real problem for this country and indeed particularly for Mrs May. So those are my kind of preamble comments, uh, Kevin, by, by way of, of throat clearing. Um, 
This election, uh, oddly enough, if you think about it, this election was supposed to be about foreign policy. Mm. It, you know, that's what she called the election for. It doesn't happen very often that you have an election which is largely or supposed to be mainly and primarily about foreign policy. But after all, Brexit is, as I've been repeatedly told, it is the most important foreign policy decision this country will take since the end of the Second World War. That's what we've been told. That's been the mantra. And so this was supposed to be a foreign policy uh, election. It's an, it was an interesting foreign policy election because I think Brexit may have been mentioned about four times. Uh, there was no debate around Brexit. There was no discussion around Brexit. There was no analysis of the terms of Brexit. We had to keep our cards close to our chest just in case we let those dodgy Europeans know what we're thinking as if they don't know already. You know, so it's an extraordinary situation. You call an election uh, on Brexit uh, to prove that we will have a strong and firm leader in the shape of Mrs May in order to be able to negotiate a strong Brexit. And Brexit hardly figured in, the, in, 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 in this last election. Everything else figured, but not Brexit. Not directly, and I'll come on to that very briefly later on, because I think even though it didn't figure directly... I think it did figure in, in other ways, and I think it's, play, it's played a role, if, if, if everything which turns out tonight to be true, which actually I think does serious damage to the hard Brexit people. I think it does serious damage to the hard Brexit people, because if the vote works its way through tonight, this is clearly not a, mani this is not a manifesto to move forward on for a hard Brexit. Now, whether that's good or bad in terms of the previous discussion which we were having about the economy, I don't know, but it means that if this was to be a hard Brexit election where she would have a, a mandate to go for hard Brexit, it seems to me the British people would pull back from that, or at least certainly would not have voted for that in any, in any great numbers. And that may or may not be a good thing. I got a, I got a sense in this election, and it may, may just be my sense because it reflects my own personal biases, I, feel, I think there's an increasing nervousness in this country about Brexit overall. I noticed the Financial Times over the weekend uh, talked about the business community be beginning to get consulted. <laughs> Give me a break. I mean, you know, you know, they're getting consulted. Now, you know, when the business community overall, large businesses, City of London, manufacturing, uh, small businesses too, uh, you know, are beginning to say, well, could you please consult us about this? You know, again, I think there's a serious nervousness out there about Brexit. Maybe, I'm not saying we're gonna, it's gonna, we want to rerun of a, a referendum. Maybe we do. I don't know. We can talk about that. And again, I think this has also been reflected in this. So for those of her, not those who voted Brexit, but those who think we would go for a hard Brexit, I think that, and I, uh, this, I find it rather positive, actually. It, it, this, is, this has been a damage to those who wanted that hard Brexit. It's been a defeat for the hard Brexiteers. That's my first impressions on the, on the opinion polls going out tonight. And I, I, I'm not sure that's good or bad, but it may be that those on the right wing of the party, the UKIP people, and the rest, you know, have, have actually been, have suffered a major defeat tonight. Um, and, and, and that, I think, has some political consequences, not only for this country, but the, the way we will negotiate, if, if indeed we ever get into negotiations. Let me just make three very quick points. Mrs May fought a, what I call a Union Jack election. She wrapped the Union Jack so tightly round herself that after a while I couldn't tell where the Union Jack began or ended. Um, she went in pledging to fight hard for a hard Brexit, a Union Jack, and I, I find it has not worked. 
You know, she's gone with this kind of nationalism, patriotism, I'm standing up for Britain. And again, we'll have to wait and see how the, how the, uh, the polls translate into vote. But it's not, it doesn't seem to have worked. It doesn't seem to work, which I personally find very positive <coughs> because it proves that, you know, not every Brit in this country is a chauvinist and hates foreigners. But I do think this has been a major miscalculation, again. She tried the, the Union Jack approach. The second thing she also tried to do, and this is where security and foreign policy did come into this, and again it didn't work for her, you may have noted, she played the scare card. Britain is not safe with Corbyn. He won't press the button. He's kind of dodgy about NATO. He may not like everything the United States has done in its foreign policy over the last 20 years. Well, duh, nor do I. Um... He, he doesn't know what nuclear deterrence means. Oh, and above all, he was Jerry Adams' bag handler over in Northern Ireland. Oh, and by the way, he mixed with some dodgy jihadist at a demonstration in 2002 in Trafalgar Square. Now, I, I, I don't normally read The Sun, The Daily Express and The Daily Mail in ten minutes, normally on one morning. It's not... You know, I can't do it. I, I can't digest it. It's too deep and profound. But I read it, I read it, I read it the other morning, and they really, particularly after the London attacks, they really played the scare. They really played the scare against Corbyn. And they've been playing that scare right throughout this campaign. And again, it's significant and interesting. It's, it's, not, it's not a positive point, but it, hasn't seemed to, it doesn't seem to have worked. It doesn't seem to have worked. In the old days, you could play the Red Scare, and this time they tried to play the security scare, whether on terrorism, soft on terrorism, soft on the causes of terrorism, and all the rest, NATO, nuclear weapons, and it hasn't certainly worked. So on that, I mean, in that way, although this is supposed to be an election about foreign policy, which it wasn't, nonetheless, in some ways, I think some of the issues which she tried to play into, British nationalism, patriotism, the Union Jack, scaring the electorate into the Tory fold, into the Conservative fold, because Corbyn would be soft. You couldn't trust the country in its hands has not worked. So there may be some foreign policy consequences for, from, from this election, and they may also feed into the Brexit negotiations. I don't quite know how, but all I know is that this, this country is still in an extraordinarily divided situation, and going in to these negotiations now is, I think, going to be even more difficult uh, than, it, than it even was before. And maybe, maybe that is a good thing. That may be a good thing. Because I must be perfectly honest, if Mrs May tonight had won, let's just say, her 80 or 90 majority, it would have been for a hard Brexit. And, and therefore the negotiations, it seems to me, with our European friends and, and allies would have, would, would have been very tough. I and mean, you might have seen a collapse of those negotiations in a very short space of time. I think we're in okay. more uncertain times, but I'm actually pleased, actually, we're in a more uncertain situation than what, than what many of our experts earlier predicted uh, this evening. But I mustn't be critical of my colleagues, must I? So I'll, I'll shut up. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mick, very much indeed. Um, Jerry, uh, okay. perhaps uh, you could give us a alternative perspective, uh, perhaps, no, uh, from China? Well, slightly non-European perspective in here. I hate to say this, but I w when I look at the polls and when I look at everything what Theresa May did so far, it strikes me she learned quite a lot from Xi Jinping by emphasizing on party discipline. Why we have an election? Why call it's not an election? Mm. At the end of the day, it's all about party discipline. You make sure within the party you have a unified version on the one hand. 
Then, on the other hand, perhaps this also boosts the Chinese Communist Party's enormous confidence. <laughs> one should never externalizing the internal party conflicts, and that's perhaps the two lessons the Chinese has learned so far from the Brexit. Mm. But following on that, I mean, if we don't have a hung parliament, as what Expo predicted, it will only reduce Britain's already tarnished reputation by being a strong, unstable international partner. How can you afford to have a partner who is going to have a three elections within a year? And I mean, I take an example of the Chinese who has invested enormous <laughs> amount of money and problem. energy and also pres- political prestige in this country just to make sure European Union would help China and UK would help China um, campaigning for its own market <coughs> status within the European Union. However, that does not happen. And then China is getting hugely disappointed in this case, and not even to mention the amount of investments the China is putting into this country as well. I mean, how can they really have an enormous amount of trust of this particular government or even to this country? And it used to be the UK and the United States together are in the same first class, the first world camp, according to what Chairman Mao said. But nowadays, the China is really treating the UK almost like a laughingstock after this Brexit. Mm. I'm sorry to really disappoint you in here, but I mean, this is really show how the rest of the world seeing the UK as being a responsible international player in this case. And secondly, what I try to emphasize in here is the UK try to play the card of economic diplomacy, because as we know, the city of London, status of the city of London, and also that exorbitant privilege of the currency issues in here, and the UK try to stabilize it. But however, as we said, you need to have a stable political environment in order to have a strong currency. And as what we've seen tonight regarding pounds, is not likely to happen. So how can London secure its own reputation as a centre for international, international finance after this, this election? I don't know. That's my answer in here. And then lastly, and the point I would like to bring in here is regarding the values. So if we're going to have a hung parliament, and if we're going to have a, a coalition between Labour and Labour Dam, and perhaps they could put in stronger emphasizing over values, over normative issues, which perhaps non-European countries find far more difficult to dealt with. And perhaps you see China and India retreat from dealing with the UK. And then for the further upcoming international trade negotiation with China and India, and I'm afraid UK does not really have any trump card in this case at all. So that's three points, observation I had. I mean, as of what I said, just to conclude in here, to have too many elections is not really a recipe for stability. One can only hope, really, this land of um, hope and glory will not really t- into, turn into a doom and disaster. And I'll stop in here. I'm looking forward to hearing your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, Brian. Yes, so thank you very much for sticking around. Um, I'm going to make three relatively brief points. Um, I, I, I think there's, there's three big takeaways from this election. One is that there is a shattering of a bipartisan, bipartisan consensus in Britain on both sides, right? So Jeremy Corbyn, some of his statements on NATO and on uh, groups that have sponsored terrorism, et cetera, uh, yes, there were certainly smears uh, levied against him, but they're, they're based on, on events that actually happened, right? And, and so uh, those statements and calling NATO a menace and not committing to deploy troops in defense of Article 5, which is the core aspect of NATO, an attack on one is an attack on all, uh, that's a seriously different uh, outward trajectory 
from the bipartisan consensus that's reigned for quite a long time. On the conservative side, uh, the insularity of the conservative party's manifesto is a very big departure from a much more outward-looking Britain, and obviously this comes on from the Brexit. So I think this is something where you have the, the, the Brexit vote. So this is something where you have, uh, no matter what happened tonight, it is clear that there has been a departure from the consensus of, conserv of conservative and labor foreign policy uh, for the last, you know, several decades, and certainly the post-Cold War consensus. That's a stark and, and striking uh, um, moment in British politics. The second thing I would say is that even though uh, if, if any of you have seen my media commentary previously or, or what I talk about on Twitter quite a lot, uh, I am no fan of Donald Trump. But I think that Britain needs America, not Donald Trump, but America more than they have at mm -hmm. any point post-Cold War. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because at the point where you turn your back on Brussels, that, in, that enhances and elevates the importance of other non-European partners on security and defense policy. The, U, the U.S. budget on defense is 13 times the British budget on defense. It absolutely dwarfs any sort of defense spending the U.K. has. And at any time when there's a security question, it is basically that special relationship that is a credible deterrent to any action against Britain. Now, Trump, unfortunately, is making NATO even weaker because he did not commit, uh, vocally at least, in his uh, remarks over his foreign trip to the Article 5 uh, defense pledge. And so there are questions. He's called NATO obsolete, the same way that Jeremy Corbyn uh, – I mean, you, Jeremy Corbyn is even harsher on it, calling it more of a menace – but, but the point is that NATO is splintering at a time where uh, the special relationship is extremely important. And this is where I think Theresa May, my guess is, I don't know personally, but my guess is that behind closed doors she loathes Donald Trump, but she has understood what every British prime minister has understood, which is that the security of the United Kingdom does rely to a very large extent on a relationship with the United States. And I believe that will become even more apparent uh, as the relationship with the EU splinters in some form, shape or form. And the third point I want to make is also related to Trump and how much more volatile the international order has become. We are seeing, I believe, uh, a, a slow death of the American-led international order as a result of Trump's uh, erratic and impulsive America first policy that is not coherent, but certainly is not in support of the world order that was articulated in the Bretton Woods institutions in the post-World War II climate. And this means that there is much more latitude for movement in places where there was previously a lot of stability and solid footing. And we're seeing this already with the GCC crisis, which Trump is stoking on Twitter, etc. Russia is becoming newly aggressive. This has not just been happening in the last year, but also since the invasion of Ukraine and Crimea, annexation. And so I think there's going to be a lot more volatility at a time when these relationships are under threat. So the, the key aspect of this election to me is that you have a uh, lack of a mandate, a much more uh, fractured foreign policy consensus on both sides, and a very, very contentious relationship, no matter what happens with Donald Trump going forward. Because even though I agree, and I'm, I'm personally embarrassed by the, the comments he's made uh, after the London attacks, I also recognize that you know, the, the, the scoring political points by criticizing that special relationship is very different when you're in 10 Downing Street. Mm. And you realize that intelligence sharing and security and defense for the British people does rely to a very, very large extent, whether you like it or not, on mm. Washington. And so that's where I think there, there's a lot of, uh, of risk ahead, mm. no matter what the outcome is in this election. Mm.
Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, I guess if there's a connecting uh, theme between what uh, the three of you have been saying is uh, a sense that the election results makes the UK seem to be uh, less relevant as an international partner, uh, more insular, divided, uncertain uh, about itself. Uh, but Brian's just made the point about, uh, in the context of Brexit, actually the UK needing the United States even more, the UK needing China even more. Have we simply shot ourselves in the foot? And I wonder, when Donald Trump has his intellectual moments, and surely that must I, be my hypothetically <laughs> possible, uh, when Donald Trump yeah. does reflect on this, does he yeah. uh, now see Britain as being actually uh, less relevant as a partner uh, and give up? Two, two very quick points. So first of all, I, I think you're underestimating it to say Britain shot itself in the foot. I think there's another part of the anatomy that they probably shot themselves in. <laughs> in, other thing, in other words, I, I mean, and this is not because, you know, because I don't realise some of the fundamental flaws inside the European Union and all the rest of it, but clearly the, the, the vote in June 2017 was a major, sh a major shot in whatever part of the body you want to identify. And then followed by the US election, and that brings me to the point that Brian was making, in, es in essence, the, the international world of liberal economic order was in large part a construction of, of, of a kind of combination of a declining Britain and a rising the United States at the end of the post-war period. And that, therefore, the, the very fact that we had a Brexit vote here and a Donald Trump vote in, in the United States, mm -hmm. taking those two together, because they're such important partners, not only for the special relationship, but in some sense of the under, underwriting of the rules of the liberal economic order, I think that is what's creating a, the, the deep uncertainty that, that you've, you've mentioned. And, and in that regard, too, and, and I, I totally agree with what you said at the last point, Brian, the other thing is, too, Britain, I think, now finds itself in an extraordinarily difficult position. Because on the one hand, of course, in a way, whatever Boris Johnson says, we have said goodbye to Europe however you want to sell it. Mm. You know, it, it, you don't have to go, you go to mainland Europe, they're pretty clear, you've said goodbye, and they say it even more strongly than that sometimes. Yet at the same time, Brian's right, we clearly do need the United States for intelligence, it's the biggest investor in this country, for goodness sake, you know, the, share, the shared values and all sorts of other things, I agree. But Britain needs America more now when they've got a president who is a real problem for any special relationship. That was my point, really, Brian. Yeah, and I that, agree. Okay. That's the thing I was trying to get at. Yeah. How do you think Donald Trump uh, would respond to this election in terms of partnership with the UK? Yo. Well, it I mean, I think it depends on uh, what the outcome is. I mean, yeah. I, think, I think if there was a Prime Minister Corbyn, it would sour relations considerably. Oh. Uh, I mean, it, it, would, oh. it would really stress... Oh. It would really stress the special relationship, but I think... But what, on the, what about the assumption that we have a government with either a, a very small majority or a government without a majority? How then does London look from uh, Washington? Well, I think Trump might think that he can bully uh, you know, Westminster a bit more if, if Theresa May is in a weak position, if she's weakened by Brexit, if, she feels, if he feels that she needs him more than ever, which she, she probably would if she were to remain as prime minister. I mean, I think the, you know, one of the counterfactuals that I think is very interesting to entertain here is imagine that Brexit uh, had not happened but Trump was elected, yes. right? And I think in that world, you have, 
Europe take the mantle of the liberal international order and, beco- and the EU truly becoming the global player, right? I mean, in terms of GDP, the EU is as large as the U.S., and so it actually could be a counterweight to a Trump presidency. It could be credible. It could have a foreign policy that becomes much more security-oriented, especially around NATO. Uh, and because of Brexit, that cannot happen because you, you simply have a splintering of an extremely important part of the EU defense policy off from, from the EU. Um, that doesn't mean that I, I, I don't want to overplay the fact that Britain is still extremely relevant in security policy. Right? If, you, if you're thinking about a country that can basically attack almost anywhere in the world on a very short notice – you're probably looking at the U.S., France, and Britain, maybe Russia at a push, and, and to a lesser extent China, depending on their capabilities and where it is, right? So, so Britain is still a major, major player and one of the linchpins of NATO, but this, this puts more emphasis on how important, uh, I believe, the United States has become to Britain, and that is where Brexit, combined with Trump, is, yes. a, is a one-two punch. Okay. Yeah. Cherry, I just wonder, from the uh, Chinese point of view, um, Brexit... Uh, and this particular uh, election may seem to make the UK seem isolated and uh, perhaps less relevant. But I guess on certain policy areas, not least uh, Paris and climate change, uh, Beijing might still see uh, the UK as a relevant partner, particularly in the context of Donald Trump being less reliable? Uh, rightly so. I have to say, the Chinese leader in here tried to take the unexpected. Yes. See what the opportunity left. Of course, I mean, the, the one you mentioned, just mentioned on climate change, that's one major deal. But on, on the other hand, we should not really ignore the fact of UK-China relations is mostly based on trade and investments. So the China, Chinese negotiators they have in mind is try to negotiate certain things the Chinese hasn't yet received from the European Union. So they could ask the UK government to admit China as a full market economy, firstly. Yes. And then secondly, the bilateral free trade and investment agreement, and that's something already Beijing and London has started to negotiate with each other. They already started initial talking, but at the end of the day, if we have a, a government like this, and which person Beijing should call in London at the end of the day? And that's the big question remain to be answered. <laughs> but on the positive side, what I'd like to add in a little bit of security collaboration here, as we have seen what's happened in the last two weeks, this country, this country suffered enormously by terrorist attack. So does China. China also have a huge problems regarding its ethnic minority and its Muslim population. And of course, that's one thing the Chinese government was hoping could work together with the UK on the counterterrorism. So perhaps <coughs> I would see some bright spots from this bilateral relations after the general election. And if the UK wants to remain relevant in the international arena on, at the UN Security Council. Good, thank you. Um, In the time that remains, we've got a number of questions, and I'm going to go through them uh, rather quickly and perhaps just ask individual panellists separate uh, questions. Uh, This is a question from Ben, who asks whether uh, Brexit and uh, tonight's election results might actually add to the momentum for the EU27 being rather more cohesive when it comes to foreign policy and defence. In other words, Mm. I guess the logic is that uh, perhaps Britain has made itself less relevant. The rest of the EU27 may have an encouragement to be stronger. Well, yeah, I mean, that is certainly an argument that's been put forward, that uh, 
two things have happened which at one level look genuinely threatening to the EU, namely Brexit on the one hand and Donald Trump's uh, election last November on the other. And so the, the immediate reaction, I think, from most people was this is a, is a problem for the EU. Brexit is fragmentary, could encourage further populism across Europe, etc., 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 plus all the difficulties of the negotiation. And then secondly, Trump comes along and says, well, I don't like the EU, I like Brexit, and NATO is obsolete. So at one level, the immediate reaction, of course, of both Brexit and Trump together was to say, well, look, this is a major challenge to the EU and will further accelerate its decline, if you like, over the long term. Um, there is, however, a counter-argument, which strikes me, we'll have to see what works out over the medium and longer term, which is that actually in both senses, those events could turn into their opposite. In other words, Brexit, Britain could end up as a deterrent state, <laughs> i.e. what's happening to Britain now could be a major deterrent for anybody ever in the future, ever thinking of leaving the European Union. Because look, look at the problems that it's already generated. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, set, it's already set up a highly divided country. It's set, it's set people against people in this country. We're we 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 stuck with a series. So I think it actually could end up people in the European Union, maybe we even saw that in the Macron victory in France, I don't know. Mm. But the, in a way, that what you're seeing is that people will look at Britain across the channel and say, well, hold on. That's not what we want. But if we're going to do something new, we've got to do something new. And if you add then the Trump factor in, or Trump has been saying, what he's basically saying to the Europeans, let's be blunt, he's sticking two fingers up to the Europeans, and to some degree to NATO, we're not going to carry you forever, friends. We're not going to pick up the tab. We're not going to pony up all the time. And inevitably, and we can see this from the new Franco-German relationship, which is beginning to emerge, they're going to start saying, well, okay, we'll do it ourselves. And if Britain is out of the game, the spoiler, at least on the EU debates, is, been, is, is out. And I, I, you know, you meet this yourself when you go to the European Union or meet European friends. They, they, okay, they, they're sad about it. They feel sorry for us. Mm. Whenever I travel now, I kind of, kind of say, well, I'm really sorry. And they say, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, but it, 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 there is a sense that you get in the back of your mind with many of those who want to push for a more integrated Europe, a more coherent Europe, a more coherent foreign policy Europe, that maybe ironically, and maybe in some senses quasi-tragically, the election of Trump on the one side and the, the British getting out on the other may allow a space now for a, for a new... And, and this has been said not just by me, but it's being said by some very serious people across the channel. Thanks, Mick. Uh, question, Brian, from Nadia, who says that uh, with Donald Trump disrupting the global liberal order and pulling out of pivotal international agreements, for example, climate change and possibly the Iran deal, does the UK, UK need to reconsider her priorities and uh, what kind of direction might that take us? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the, the real challenge here is that uh, for the first time, certainly since George W. Bush, but uh, potentially in, a, in an even more unprecedented way, Trump is politically toxic to a British public, right? So uh, if you look at public opinion polls of attitudes towards the U.S., they absolutely collapsed uh, during the Iraq mm. War, and then they spiked to a huge degree when Barack Obama was elected, and they, they fell steadily but, but slowly uh, since then. Um, so, he, you know, this sort of idea, he didn't live up to the optimism uh, held true in British public attitudes. I think this is where Britain needs to think about what it latches onto, 
Uh, and this, this is the big question, right? And this is, this is where it's so problematic for whoever the next prime minister is to orient Britain in a very, very rapidly changing world when the EU is certainly not going to be the future uh, that, 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 that they're latching onto, right? So there's only a few options, right? You, if you're a small island, admittedly, it's the, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world, but you still, it's not, it, it needs to be in tandem with something else. The options are basically the U.S., the EU, and China. Right? Russia is not an option anyway, even if, it, even if it were considered, because Russia's economy is the same size as Italy. So you know, this is something where you've basically got those three options. And I think you know, this, is, this is a serious debate that this country needs to have is, is there enough shared value with China? Uh, it, can, it, can, a, can a relationship exist purely on economic reasons or for economic incentives? Uh, and can the British public stomach Donald Trump long enough to make deals with the U.S. that are in the interests of the British population, but are abhorrent to its people. And that's the most difficult thing that the next politician, whoever is in town Downing Street, is going to have to, to, to tackle. Because, you know, I think there's a lot made of the hand-holding that Theresa May had. But again, I think this is the most impossible needle to thread uh, when you have an obvious and clear consensus that this relationship is extremely valuable mm. and an obvious and clear consensus behind closed doors that the person that the relationship must go through is toxic politically and a liability to your own re-election pro- prospects. And I think tonight, actually, I would not be surprised if some of the movement away from Theresa May is, is response is, is because yeah. of the Trump, Donald Trump in, in, you know, handholding. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and that's something that's going to continue. It's going to get worse because Trump is who he is. He's not going to change. He's not going to apologize. So, you know, there's going to be three and a half more years potentially of exactly this and how much the next prime minister can stomach is going to be uh, the degree to which the special relationship crumbles. Thanks. Jerry, just wonder from the uh, point of view of... Uh, China, a new British Prime Minister, what could that Prime Minister do to make us seem to be more relevant, more interesting, more um, a more credible partner? What's the foreign policy shift that Beijing might actually respond Adopt to? Adopt the renminbi. Not just the room. Well, obviously, the room is a really big, major, um, what I call it, the British government, actually a major achievement for the internationalization as the London as the only trading, uh, trading spots in, in Europe. And then that actually guaranteed the tax and revenues of this country. But then on the other hand, what China really hoping is to have that sense of consistency from the new prime minister, exactly what... UK wanted from China, apart from trade and investment, as just mentioned, anti-terrorism is one thing. And also share with your value is re- regarding this whole idea of sharing, sharing values with China. I mean, clearly there's no any shared values between the two sides at all. Mm. And um, unfortunately, that's the sad case as it is. But also there's something, a learning process for China itself is the rest of the world cannot really be brought with the millions of investments to gain respect. The respect really have to come from the society and not under people. And this is something perhaps as China's international cities are growing, and this is one thing perhaps the country has to learn as well. So it's a conversation we should have really in the frank and the candid manner. Thank you. Uh, Mick, perhaps I could ask you the last question. Mm-hmm. Oksana asks this uh, question about um, <laughs> the historical parallels. Chechi mm. uh, says that uh, the Conservatives invoke Joseph Chamberlain a lot, his tariff reform uh, in the, 19, in the uh, mm. 1906 election. Mm. 
Uh, I guess the question here is of a historical kind, that if you were thinking of uh, an election which had perhaps uh, the most consequences for British foreign policy, the biggest potential for a shift in foreign policy, then uh, what's the nearest example to what we're living through at the moment, do you think? Oh, good God. Um, mm. Joseph Chamberlain. Um, I asked on the basis that probably uh, you remembered him. Well, I do, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I knew him well. By the way, uh, one of the founders of this school, Beatrice Webb, had a relationship with Joseph Chamberlain, which never, never, never came to fruition. In the end, she went went with the person she finally married, Sidney Webb. So, but that's just an aside while I try and think of a decent answer. Uh, I always resort to my LSE historical knowledge to avoid answering any questions. I, you know, I, 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 I'm bound to say, look, there's a lot of kind of parallels you, you could make. I, I, I would kind of call this, if, if this, if this works out in the way it works out tonight, we'll have to call this the biggest cock-up election for some years. So I suppose I wouldn't think of a Joseph Chamberlain or a Winston Churchill or a Mrs. Thatcher, God forbid. I would kind of think, what was the last election which was the biggest screw-up by any, by any sitting prime minister? Uh, Edward Heath possibly uh, going to the country on who rules in the early 1970s. I think that wasn't so hot, was it, really? Mm. Um, but that would be about it, really. I suppose that would also then have um, the Heath uh, going to the country also then uh, put in question Britain's membership of the European community. We had yes, no, 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 if, yeah, the more I think of it, less Joseph Chamberlain, a Tory imperialist. Uh, of course, there was an empire then, so he could be a Tory imperialist. I mean, this is what's so absurd about this Chamberlain. Chamberlain. I understand what's the, what she's getting at, what her advice is getting at. Chamberlain, Chamberlain actually was radical. On, on certain social issues. He wanted to build a working class base for the party, which he was a member of, by building empire and constructing empire. By the way, the first uh, director of the school became an economic advisor to Joseph Chamberlain as well. Another historical fact you didn't need to know, but I just told That's you. Very good, very good. Uh, A.S. Hewins. Um, but we don't have an empire. I mean, the point was that Chamberlain had an option. It didn't work in the end for all sorts of reasons, although it did come pretty close to it in the 1930s. And that's the point. I mean, there, there isn't an imperial option. You know, if you look at the 1930s, even, even, even for a period after World War II, you could use empire as market, you could use empire as reassurance, you could use empire for some notion of status in the world, becoming the Commonwealth. That is, that is not any longer the option. That is simply not there. I mean, this, so, you know, this is why this is such a, an extraordinarily weird situation that we are in. There is no third way back to the empire, to use that phrase. You know, the problems with the special relationship, I think, are going to intensify for all the reasons that Brian has mentioned. And now, in a way, we've not cut ourselves off from Europe because we're still very much part of Europe, but we've alienated and done major damage to our relationship with Europe. And I think that is the situation we're in. And that's what we also need an honest debate about. Not about how much taxation, but where is this country now in the world? And, and this seems to be very, very, very damaging where, where we are and very problematic. And that was one of the great, another one of the great missing opportunities in, in this election. This that, what, that didn't even become part of the debate. You know, this is an intelligent people, after all, electorate, after all. And we didn't even begin to engage with those kinds of discussions. And nor, by the way, to be fair, and I'll come back to Brian's point, nor, by the way, did Corbyn. 
who I don't agree with on many foreign policy issues. The only point I made about Corbyn was that while they, 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 they tried to scare people not to vote for Corbyn on all those issues, and it didn't seem to work. But anyway, okay. there we go. Many thanks. Um, and thank you, Mick, for thank giving you. that answer. It allowed us me to wait for Tony Travers to return to oh, the I'm, I'm uh, lecture theatre. I'm so just an intro for Travers. Thank you for the link. Uh, thank you for staying with us for this uh, yep. panel. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to uh, show your appreciation for our speakers. Uh, and then I'm going to pass over to Tony Travers to give us his uh, summary of the meaning of tonight's uh, election. Uh, we've not stayed up uh, till 1.30, Tony, uh, without actually hoping that you're going to make sense of this thing. Uh, so I'll give Tony a couple of minutes to, a couple of seconds to work out his uh, summary. But uh, whilst doing that, can you please join me in thanking yeah. our three speakers for this panel? Right. Well, well. Um, by all means, feel free to stay or go. I mean, if you want to uh, get the drinks while they're still out there. Um, well, uh, first, uh, I'd like to thank this panel, which I've just heard the end of and heard bits of earlier on. Um, one of the intriguing things about this unexpected result is that, as I sort of said where we be when we began the evening, a panel on the future of British politics, a panel on Brexit, one on the economy and welfare, and one on defence and foreign policy might have been uh, just carry on regardless. But now on, now they may not be, and indeed almost certainly won't be. Because we've had another remarkable election result. Those of you who've been with us last year for the <laughs> Brexit referendum, the previous year for the 20. Uh, 15 general election will now know that we appear to have had a three out of three uh, surprise result and it just goes to show that in a democracy never ever take the electorate for granted I know nobody in the room will do that we are of course uh, I have said about 200 times since we started this evening assuming the, the exit poll is correct but as we get more results from different parts of the country, it still appears to be broadly in the right ballpark. It's not impossible the Conservatives couldn't uh, creep up slightly and perhaps have a tiny overall majority, but they could have a minority and therefore rely on presumably some kind of support if it came to this from the Democratic Unionists. I think they'd be the most likely grouping to support them. And that oh, creates God. all sorts of implications, oh. not only for government in the UK, I doubt it would be a coalition, probably some kind of agreement, but in terms of the future of Northern Ireland and the EU uh, exit negotiations, profoundly interesting oh. for uh, Northern Ireland and for the island of Ireland more generally. Now, for the major parties, well, you know, Conservative Party and Theresa May started, held an election which we've been told wouldn't take place. Theresa May had said several times there wouldn't be a general election until 2020 when it was next due. It happened unexpectedly, and I assume because Theresa May and her advisers thought the Conservatives would win. If they don't win, and don't win big, and it's not looking as if they are going to win big, it's possible that even if Mrs May does win with a majority of one, it will be a very good example of how you can lose and win at the same time. <laughs> Equally, for Jeremy Corbyn, who 
for whom the election started with incredibly low expectations. <laughs> uh, indeed. Uh, I mean, very low expectations indeed. In fact, you could argue he could only have outperformed them and probably has done. So the direction of change for the two of them from the beginning, Mrs May with her 20 to 24% opinion poll leads, Jeremy Corbyn, who was thought to be absolutely incapable of winning extra seats for the Labour Party, the, the momentum's been to push them together. For the Liberal Democrats, it doesn't, they're going to make some progress, a little bit more perhaps than was expected. For the Scottish National Party, it looks as if they're going to lose seats quite substantially, and that will suggest that we are some way past peak nationalism. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be a second referendum about Scottish nationalism at some point, but I suspect this pushes it off a little further into the future than it had already uh, receded. Now, within the country, there are clearly regional impacts. I can't go into all of these yet, partly because many of the results from the Midlands and the South haven't been declared. Uh, But it does look as if the North will have smaller swings from Labour to the Conservatives, and in some, sorry, from Conservatives to Labour, and in some places there will be swings from Labour, there have been swings from Labour to the Conservatives. But the nearer you've come down to the south, it does look in London, just before I came in, I looked at Tooting. Now, Tooting was a marginal constituency. Formerly Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London's constituency, was marginal. And uh, the MP who's uh, standing has just got back with a 14,000 majority. So it's now a safe Labour seat from being a marginal seat. And it does look as if there are going to be regional impacts, with Labour perhaps doing even better in London and the south than they've been doing in other parts of the country. You know, they're not going to win the election, but they're doing better than expectations. Now, why? Well, we'll have many happy years of academic research to work out this. <laughs> Thank goodness for elections, uh, and so much else besides in defence and foreign policy and beyond. Now, the Brexit vote was... Many reasons were attributed to why the Brexit vote occurred. But one of them, the most powerful one, was... Um, an anti-establishment vote. People who felt they'd been left behind by the economy, left behind by global change, realising that they needed to do something when they got the opportunity to express that. It looks as if there may be an element of that in this vote as well. A sense that the, the way of voting against the establishment in this election was in effect not to vote for the large conservative majority which had been effectively offered. Now, I can't say that for sure. We have to be careful. The opinion poll, the the exit poll isn't the final result. But I think there is another degree of anti-establishment in this vote. I would expect that to be part of the analysis as we look further forward. Having said all of this, the most likely result of all of this is Theresa May will form another government. Worth remembering that. Whether it's a minority government with some support or a small majority government, then she will form a new government. But that government will then have to start the Brexit negotiation process in earnest against the backdrop that the very reason for holding the general election to get the bigger majority to empower those negotiations won't be present. So that that will be understood both uh, in Britain and, of course, in the EU27 and beyond, in other capitals around the world. The difficulty it presents, I suspect, in Westminster, if if Mrs May ends up with a small majority, if, or no majority, then any small group of MPs can 
demand changes in what the government is doing. Getting legislation through will be far more difficult for the very reason that Theresa May herself said she wanted a bigger majority to be able to be sure she could get through legislation, not just about Brexit, but about other things besides. So it's going to be a very awkward position and with the risk of some instability, I suspect, as we move forward. It depends whether she gets a majority or not. My final thought is this, and you know, you should never make predictions definitely about British elections, but as we come to the end of the night, it's hard not to see if the result turns out anything like that exit poll. It's hard to see there not being another general election within two years. That is, it's such a narrow margin in a system like the UK one, which in a sense is built to function with a reasonably empowered majority government, that if there isn't a reasonably empowered majority government, and we've seen this in recent history, you end up with another general election sooner rather than later. So uh, if I can leave you with that happy thought that we may all be gathering again here soon. Uh, I wouldn't say exactly when, but it's been a lovely evening. I'd like to thank all the panels, everybody who's spoken, everybody who's come back and stayed till this hour. In fact, we don't finish absolutely immediately. You can go out and chat and have another drink. But this is the end of the formal part of the evening, the panels, and now this attempt at a wrap-up. So thank you all for coming, and we look forward to seeing you whenever the next election is.